Miners don't sell in Shanghai or at higher price places because they can't. Good afternoon, 1 p.m. your time on the East Coast. 10.56 my time as I'm recording this. Yesterday, Chris Marcus uh, and I had a conversation about metals in general, as we frequently do. And uh, he mentioned that uh, an Arcadia Economics subscriber and friend of the show had asked a good, well, he asked a question, and the question was a good question. I think uh, the question was, why don't miners forego COMEX and sell for the higher price on the SGE or somewhere else? And uh, that spurred what you're looking at there. Silver and gold mine hedging. Number one, how miners hedge. Number two, why exchanges were created and what went wrong. And number three, how everything is changing for the better for you. That's a lot of stuff to talk about. So today, I want to talk about how miners hedge. But I want to answer the question that was asked specifically before we go into the here's how it works. The shorter answer, the short answer is they, for the most part, miners cannot do that they are contractually obligated to sell to a certain counterparty, a certain entity at a certain time. For the most part, they do not even hedge on COMEX for the most part. They may use COMEX price for hedging price, but not COMEX to hedge literally, especially not the big ones. They almost always sell to an intermediary or an end user. Now, those are important terms intermediaries and end users, and we will get to them in a minute. Uh, miners, for the most part, almost always do their biggest business over the counter, OTC, not on the exchange. Now, to again, the answer is they do not hedge on COMEX for the most part. If you're running a mine and you're hedging on COMEX, then you're not running your mine properly. Uh, especially if you don't have someone who can handle your risk management. Now, there are exceptions, important exceptions, but by and large, you don't handle your execution of your hedge book. Anyway, so miners, for the most part, almost always do their biggest business over the counter, not on an exchange, any exchange. Now, over the counter, also known as OTC, all that means is over the counter. You're doing the business over the counter, whether you be selling to uh, uh, a film user or, uh, or a Samsung firm or an investor, that's over the counter. That's called a business transaction. Over the counter is not a transparent business, not a transparent exchange. It happens privately. It's a private deals. Okay, so for the most part, for the past decade or so, uh, remember we're talking about intermediaries and end users. For the most part, for the past decade or so, miners sold to intermediaries who hedged and or found end users to take delivery. Now, we'll get into what these terms mean and, you know, and how to map it all in your head, because we're talking about 
the plumbing here of precious metals, right? I mean, what we're really talking about is the gears of capitalism itself, how all business operates, not just metals. Okay, so let's start with end users because they're the least complicated. And I may refer to them again, but let's just get them out of the way. End users are people who take the raw material and use it, right? Or it's in a refined form and they use it. So I pull metal out of the ground and I refine it. Let's say I refine it or I work. The end user is the place that goes last, the end of the supply chain. It could be an investor buying that coin. Boom, right? It could be, it could be a um it could be a phone company like Samsung buying it for electronics. It could be a film company. They still use silver in film. Film still exists. Um, buying silver for film. Uh, it could be someone who wants to use it as a doorstop. I don't give a shit. That's an end user. Where it goes last and stops unless it's sold uh, in a in a in a in a in a industrialized form, you know. So to use oil as an example. Oil is mined, right? It's pulled out of the ground, uh, drilled for. It's mined. And after it's mined, it goes through various people and processes along the supply chain until it gets to the end user. And who's the end user? Well, the ultimate end user is the guy driving his car, putting gasoline in it. The practical end user is the person who takes the oil and makes it into gasoline and sells it as gasoline, okay? So that's your end user. He makes the refined product. Think about it. The terminology is the same. The refined product is gasoline. The refined product is heating oil. The refined product is an American Eagle. The refined product is the circuit board that you put into a phone. It's the same industry. Different terms, same industry, same process. Okay, so that's the end user. All right. The the intermediary is uh, I'm going to have to use a little bit more uh, industry terms, but we'll we'll get to that. All right. Intermediaries are brokers, guys who offer a service to find a buyer for what you are selling. Right. Depending on the industry, there's different names. They go by other names: jobbers, brokers, marketers, market makers. Although true market makers, of which I am one genetically, are a different breed. Now, there's bullshit market makers too, but uh, true market makers are different. But in, we are intermediaries. We get in the middle between the buyer and the seller. We facilitate the trade. We create liquidity. We are the gold dust. Intermediaries, brokers, we're talking about brokers here. Forget the market makers. Brokers can be viewed as the gold dust that makes the deal happen. Good brokers, until you don't need them anymore. Anyway, this is a valuable service, especially when those buyers, when the buyers, the actual buyers, the actual end users are so fragmented. And you know, the two buyers that you have are in different places. You can't find them, right? So in precious metals, we'll say silver, for example, right? Uh, a miner produces a lot of metal and but the but the industry the industry uh the end users are either investors as i said and that's fragmented everywhere right everyone's it's it's, it's a fragmented industry right or they're end users in technology and those are also uh largely fragmented but consolidating right and and they're becoming less fragmented as i said but they're, they're still very fragmented 
it's not like the old days of Kodak, I guess is what I'm saying. So the intermediaries act as the salesman for the miner. Here's the metal, the intermediary. Okay, they sell the metal for you. They find a buyer and they get a risk-free commission for that at whatever the agreed upon price is. Now, the agreed upon price when you're dealing with an end user is something you have to work on, right? You negotiate that over time, right? And maybe it's based on the COMEX. Maybe it's indexed to the COMEX. Maybe it's based on some other thing out there. Now, there are two types of intermediaries, right? Forget about the market maker guys, even though, even though it's me and I love them. But there are two types of classic intermediaries, brokers and bankers, brokers and bankers. Now, brokers, they all they both provide similar but not the same services. Brokers provide discretion, exclusivity, and if they are good, a better price than the bankers. So what is a broker? Well, I'm gonna a broker is a broker. A broker is a guy who finds a person to buy what you are selling. The broker takes no balance sheet or business risk in the item being sold. He gets in between. He takes your product and he finds someone to buy it. He never owns your product. He gets paid a commission for that. And the commission can be a percentage of money. It can be a flat price, but it's negotiated, right? The other intermediate, so that's simple. The broker has a broker has value. We'll get into what his value in a second. The other intermediary is the banker. Now the banker, on a good day, on a good day, they provide everything the broker provides, plus one more thing. They provide speed of execution and volume at a price in one-stop shopping. So they get it done once, they get it done fast, and you don't have to come back and worry about it anymore. Now, how they do that, we'll get into in a second. So just to give you an idea here, brokers get in the middle or stand in the middle and represent you to get your order filled. Bankers also do that, but bankers have more to offer. Doesn't mean it's better. They just have more to offer. All right. So bankers are not brokers. Bankers are financial people. They deal in money, right? All right. But they create brokerage services to facilitate selling other services. See how that works? So if you want to look at it in a very simple way, brokers do what they do and they can't do any banking. Bankers do what they do and they also do brokering. All right. So what is it that bankers add that differentiates them from brokers? Because that's what we're talking about here. Well, as I said, they provide on a good day all the things I just said that brokers do. But one more thing they provide is speed of execution and volume at a price. You call them and the deal is on. They don't have to find the silver. They don't have to find the buyer. They don't have to line up the buyer. They don't have to get a syndicate of buyers. They get it done immediately, right? How do they do that? Well, let's assume for a moment they have all the buyers. Let's assume they have a guy sitting right next to them who wants to buy all the silver that you just mined. Well, he buys it. That's the brokering. You want to buy it? Okay, they'll sell it to you. All right. But most of the time, it doesn't happen because we know that there's a gap in between where the buyer is and where the seller is, and that's where the broker does his work. But the banker has a balance sheet. The banker has a business where he can borrow from the Fed. The banker has billions of dollars. The banker buys it from you directly. And buying it from you directly, he uses the COMEX to hedge. Not always the COMEX, but he uses the COMEX to hedge. 
as a minor, you're happy because you were given um, uh, your price, volume at a price. That's a term, volume at a price. You hang up the phone, you're done. You also know who your counterparty is. It's the bank. And you trust the bank because of your relationship, because of how big they are, because of their credit and all these other things. So you know your bank's not going to default to you because your relationship is so deep, right? The broker, on the other hand, he tells you who your who the, who the buyer was because the contract is with them, and 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 the uh, and and if that client defaults, you go after them, right? But J.P. Morgan, in this case, I'll make up J.P. Morgan, right? J.P. Morgan is your counterparty. The miner sells to J.P. Morgan over the counter in a business deal, and J.P. Morgan then hedges it. So let's circle back, and, and I want to I want to we're going to get into why it works for miners and why bankers uh, prosper doing that uh, in a minute. But I want to just wrap it all up to give you a really good example that hits home in silver. All right. Brokers are intermediaries that are just brokers, right? During their heyday, before exchanges were dominant, before exchanges were dominant, you had to know people. You had to have relationships. You had to be in the business. You had to maintain relationships. You had to be, you had to have integrity and trust. Your integrity wasn't your credit rating. Your integrity wasn't um, uh, what someone, your integrity was what you did and what someone said about you. All right. So during those days, there were always bad brokers, but there were good brokers too. And one of the good brokers was Philip Brothers. Now, Philip Brothers was one of the brokers that did not have a balance sheet. They weren't a bank per se, right? All right. So Philip Brothers specialized in extremely illiquid uh, metals uh, that people wanted. Uh, iridium will be an example. You know, unobtainium stuff. But they also did silver because that's what they did. And they found buyers when there was a seller. They found sellers when there was a buyer. And they negotiated their commissions. And they were very good at it. One of the things they were very, very good at was they did not disclose who their customer was until the deal was done. So the buyer did not know who was selling until the deal was done. So the point is they were very private and they were very good at what's called bearded business. A lot of firms are like that, but Philip Brothers is very good. And they eventually get into, into, into uh, refining and, and oil as well. Anyway, give an example. In 1994, when silver was cornered for that very brief period of time, it was Philip Brothers, known as Fibro, that handled that order flow. And that order flow, it never came out who handled that order flow, but I'm telling you who it was. It was George Soros. George Soros wanted to corner the market in gold in 93 when Clinton got in after he hit his home run in um, in uh, in the uh, British pound in cable. Uh, and he tried he started to buy gold in 93. And if you look at the gold chart, you can see what I'm talking about right around the time Clinton was getting in. And somebody told him, no, don't do that. And so he stopped. And so he said, fuck it, I'll do silver. So he did it in silver. And who was his broker? Who handled it? Not a bank. Not that banks are bad. He wanted absolute privacy. He wanted an isolated firm that was good at their job and had relationships with the banks, but would not give up his name. And that was Philip Brothers. So Soros buys silver in 94, although you won't hear Soros anymore, but that's who bought it. And Buffett stops it, okay, for a different reason, different story, right? But in 97, who buys silver? Buffett. Who does he use? Philip Brothers. He actually owned them at that point. But the point is, Philip Brothers was uh, 
really professional what they did. And they made the bankers look like idiots during that time. And that's why I love them for it. Okay. So just because companies like brokers, uh, brokers like Philip Brothers maintain these relationships with buyers of metals from global industry relationships, you know, people that use these metals and applications all over the world, they could find a buyer or a seller for you relatively quickly, right? Now bankers also did that. They also had what's called, and I mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again, bankers have what's called a brokering operation. They weren't as connected as the specialty firms like Phil Brothers, right? And there's other firms that still exist to this day that do what Phil Brothers did. Chris and I were talking about a couple of them. Uh, but, you know, but the advent of futures, uh, and this is where it changes, with the advent of futures, with the advent of futures, it made it harder for intermediaries on the broker side to continue to exist. And this happened everywhere. Think about it. Are there any brokers in stocks anymore? No, right? doesn't have to be electronic. There were less brokers when stocks went on an exchange. And there were less brokers when stocks went electronic. And now there are hardly any intermediaries anymore. Who's the broker now? The platform's the broker. The platform intermediates because the price is continuous and it's easy to see. That's the price. I can do it. That's the price. I can do it. But on the really big stuff, what happens? It goes in stocks over the counter. It goes in what they call a dark pool. And that's your over-the-counter transaction. That's called a dark pool. And a dark pool is uh, uh, private transactions that you don't hear about. All right, so brokers, because of all this innovation, have a hard time justifying their existence when the service they provide is just as easily provided uh, as selling directly on the exchange, right? So as futures grew, over-the-counter bilateral deals shrank. Bilateral, right? So the deal between the miner and Kodak went away. Why? Because the broker isn't as needed because you have the exchange. So the volume started going to exchange. Kodak did use an exchange. They did, they did, these are deep markets. They were getting deep. And buyers and sellers actually, you know, miners and end users actually would meet on an exchange. But miners didn't really use exchange as much. Um, uh, what happened was miners and end users would meet on an exchange without a broker. Without a broker, they would meet through a banker. And that's what I'm going to talk about. All right. So a broker can't be your counterparty. That's the key, right? So now with an exchange, right, with the advent of futures exchanges, you have another way for bankers to provide a service to miners. You already... They already had relationships with miners, right? Who took who took the mine public? I did. Who manages their payroll? I do. Who gives them lines of credit to buy machinery? I do. Where do they get their, how do they manage their cash flow? I do. Their accounting, I do. Their payroll, they said they're, I do. So brokering, their hedging becomes another service. Who writes research reports telling people to buy them? I do. I'm the bank. So who is now in a position to help you manage your production sales? And by the way, it's a nice service. Because if the bank can see what you're doing with your production, how you're hedging it, and help you get that production filled, then the bank can give you, okay, the miner, right? A better interest rate on the money you borrow. It can give you a better deal in other ways. It sees your flows. It can give you ostensibly better deals. So what you pay through the brokerage execution service, the brokering service owned by the bank, right? You supposedly get back in a better deal in other parts of your business model with them, okay? So why did this help banks and not brokers? Well, brokers don't have a balance sheet. 
They're intermediaries. They're, for lack of a better word, salesmen or marketers. You say to them, I want to sell my metal, right? And they say to you, okay, let me find a buyer. They find a buyer for you. They match you up. They introduce you with a handshake. And this particular deal, metaphorically, right, you have to make sure that you have credit with them. You have to make sure that the counterparty can has enough money. You got to make sure the money gets to you. You know, the check is in the mail type of shit. Who am I selling to? You give me a counterparty that sucks. But banks can get in the middle and guarantee the transaction. You sell to the bank. You're not worried about who the buyer is. You don't care if it's Joe's Jewelry. The bank can sell to Joe's Jewelry and the bank has a trilateral deal. They buy from you and their, their credit is what you trust, right? And they sell and you, the bank, sells to them and they, they, they trust them for the metal. And so the bank is the ultimate intermediary. So, so practically speaking, right? You call, give me an example. You're a miner and you have a broker and a banker, right? You call the broker up and you say, hey, I need to find a buyer of this metal. And the broker says, sure, give me a week and I'll get you the best price. Because it's a lot of metal, right? right? For this massive amount of volume that you want to do, they need a little time. And the broker works on that. Then you hang up the phone and you call your bank. And your broker already has this order already. And you call back and you say, hey, I have an order that I'd like to place. Can you help me with it? And the bank goes, yeah, what would you like to do? And they say, well, I want to sell this amount of ounces. And the bank says, okay, we'll buy it from you right here, right on the spot. No previous relationship. I mean, no previous brokerage relationship. I mean, they have a previous relationship, but no previous deal. You sell to the bank. There's no contract. The contract is struck right there. The bank takes you as its counterparty. You take it as its counterparty, the bank then buys from you and immediately hedges your production where he can get the best price. Does he have a buyer lined up? No. Well, then he sells it on the COMEX. Oh, can he sell it on Singapore? Yeah. Can he sell it in Shanghai? Yeah. But that's these are complicated paths. So you see, the exchange is a construct created to remove intermediaries. And that means bankers and brokers. And it did remove all brokers who were only intermediaries, who added no value other than saying, Joe, meet Harry. Harry, meet Joe. Nice to meet you. Do a deal, right? But bankers were smarter. Bankers, well, they had more tools. I wouldn't say that they're actually smarter. They adapted to the exchange model, which sought to remove them from the transaction. You see, the government's been trying to remove bankers forever. They adapted to the exchange model and entrenched themselves in the niche and in doing so became indispensable for the miners while dominating the exchange flows. So the miners need them because it's one-stop shopping, right? And the exchange becomes dependent on them because they have all the order flow. And so the exchanges basically, instead of replacing the bankers, end up becoming a tool for the bankers to make money. So banks providing a valuable service remove the competition. It's like any industry. You remove the competition and then you raise your prices, right? Right? Chips in the 80s. Dump the chips, remove the competition, raise your prices, right? Banks versus brokers. Banks win, brokers lose, banks win. Oh, there's no one left. They have a monopoly. They have uh, a cartel. I'm not, you know, that's that's how it is. That's just how it is. That's the problem with with um with how the market structure is so there's no competition and here's the best part here's the best part for me as a trader who would see this the best part is the miner 
is trading with the banker at a price. Well, what's the most reliable price in the world? Well, I guess it's the COMEX now. Who dominates the COMEX? The banks. So when the miner says, I have to sell, the banker says, metaphorically speaking, hold on. And the market is already lower. And so the, the miner says, I need to sell a lot of ounces. And the bank says, well, the last price on the screen is $20, $22.70. How many do you want to sell? Well, I have to sell 5,000 contracts. Like, well, that's a lot. I need to get, legitimately, I need to get volume discounting. Okay, I'll sell it to you for $22.60, right? The bank buys it at $22.60, and then he sells it on the exchange, or Singapore, or Shanghai, or to the customer. The bank is your distribution, and that's how it works. So next week, we're going to talk about exchanges, why they exist, how banks adapted, and how it all turned to shit for metals. So to answer the question, back at the very top that was asked, Miners don't sell in Shanghai or at higher price places because they can't. They can't for multiple reasons. Among them, the relationships that they have prohibit them from doing that, number one. Number two, the costs associated with transferring the metal geographically, they can't stomach. Number three, the exchanges they wish to do business on don't accept them. They're not licensed on these exchanges. They have to get permission. You have to make sure that your metal is of the bright purity. It has to be tested. This is a real thing. This is not just like a financial paper. It's not magic anymore. And that's part of the whole mercantilism thing, right? So number four, most miners don't know what they're doing in this regard. And that's okay. If you have a banker you trust, the question is, do they trust their bankers? A lot of the better miners are getting smarter at that. Uh, uh, you know, I could drop a couple of names here, but I'm not going to right now, except to say there are miners out there that got smart. So next week, here, I'll scroll this up. Next week, why exchanges were created for the government's benefit. This is where the dollar comes in. And what went wrong? And we're going to focus on the gold price problem and the silver price problem and how they needed to get the price more stable and how they used exchanges to create that concept and how banks made sure they were part of the process to ensure uh, they were needed. All right. Um, I want to add one final thing here. Uh, Arcadia Economics, uh, Silverfix viewers and Arcadia Economics subscribers, if you... Uh, well, look, we're, gonna, we're offering 30% off to Arcadia Economics people. So you can uh, subscribe and get 30% off for life uh, for the gold fix. All right. I'm Vince. This has been the Silver Fix. See you next week.